Your Partner in Success Radio is a free business podcast with host Denise Griffiths. It's all about great stories, conversation, and context to help you move your business and life forward with actionable tips and advice from her guest experts. To listen and subscribe, just find us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your podcasts. Welcome to your Partner in Success Radio. I'm your host, Denise Griffiths, and our topic today is Pitch Like Hollywood. And I am welcoming Peter Duisberg and Jeffrey Davis, who wrote the book, Pitch Like Hollywood, which happens to be in my hands as we speak. Now, Peter's background is as a clinical psychologist, and Jeffrey is a Hollywood writer-producer, and they are here to share that the most important elements of, of a pitch are what the most important <laughs> It's Monday. It's the day after time change. I'm cranky. Let's just keep on going here. I don't know who isn't cranky this morning, but they're here to share what the most important elements of a pitch are, no matter if you're pitching Hollywood or crafting a business proposition. And we're going to be talking a lot about persuasion and storytelling. And I just found out that Peter is with us, but Jeffrey cannot be here with us, so we are going to have a good time talking with Peter, who is the psychologist. So, Peter, welcome to your partner in Success Radio, and thank thank you you for sending your book. It's my pleasure, and uh, if you have any trouble going to sleep at night, you're going to find it wonderful. No, it's a great book. I was reading it over the weekend. I've got sticky notes all over the place. I really like what you're talking about persuasion and storytelling because, let's face it, if we're talking, we're telling stories. They may be good. They may be funny. They may be out like baloney, but we are telling stories, and we're always selling something, right? <laughs> so Absolutely. I think and, we have a lot to share. You know, there's so much data. You know, I, my training is as a research psychologist, and I, I study cognitive science, how people think. And there's so much research literature supporting the use of story. And you remember things longer. You keep your interests longer. It, there's, there's no reason not to do it. And when I see people standing next to a PowerPoint presentation, reading their bullet points to people. Um, when I'm in the audience, I'm hoping one of the bullets hits me in the, in the head because it's just a horrible death. It's tedious. I see the same thing. You know, I, I don't really go into events, but I'll see these on webinars, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm listening. I don't watch much of anything. I like to listen. I hear a lot of what's mm-hmm. being said in between the lines, if you will. And I can tell when they're just bullet pointing themselves to death, and I'll leave. I have to go. Oh. Well, I'll, I'll tell you an interesting thing, or interesting to me. I have a low tolerance for interest. Um, the the average, say, college-educated adult um, has a a speech rate of about 250 words a minute. And I'm sorry, a reading rate of 250 words a minute and a speech rate of 125 words per minute, which means if you're, if you're listening to bullet points being read to you, you're drumming your fingers on a table saying, why is this person going so slow? It's, ah. it's horrible. It's tedious. But worse than that is 
we do interesting demonstrations where we'll put text on the screen and say, don't read it. And it's impossible not to read it because it's, it's built in at a level of automaticity. And one of the things we know is that people cannot multitask. We're not wired for it. So if you have stuff written on the screen and you're talking at the same time, you're killing your own message. Well, you can't speak extemporaneously if you're reading something. There's no question. I've tried it. It doesn't work. Absolutely. 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 In fact, I did it earlier. And I blew it all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> but also, you know, people like to hear stories. They're just more fun. They're more interesting. And they, they, the memory for them lasts so much longer. Well, it does. And if you can stand up and be interesting, and it doesn't matter what kind of story you're telling, but you are persuading. You're either persuading people to sit forward in their seats and say, oh, keep on going. I don't know where you're going, but I'd like to take the journey with you. Or how do I get out of this room? Mm-hmm. And you know, it's just the, the best way to make a point. Um, I, I'll give you a quick instance. One of the things that we point out a lot is pitching is not a synonym for selling. We don't like to be sold because it's one person saying to another, you didn't come in to, to get this, but I want you to have it. And it's all about me telling you what you should do. And I'd like to think when I'm talking to somebody, they have my interest at heart. And pitching is really, when it's done right, is a conversation. And I'll give you a nice illustration. Um, in the book, fortunately, people are not limited to our experience. We interviewed a lot of people and got wonderful stories from them. And one of them, to illustrate this point, um, our friend Lynn Grigg is the, the head of an advertising agency. And she said when she was just starting out, she went on a meeting, a pitch, and the art director who headed the meeting went to this fellow who had a tire company, and he said, we've got six different ad campaigns. Let me tell them to you. And he said, well, what do you think? And the guy said, I hate every one of them. And she's thinking, oh, my God, we're just dead in the water. And said she was stunned by watching this art director who said, Tell me which one you hate the least. Oh, well, that's a good start. And all of a sudden, yeah, and the guy opened up and started explaining why they weren't good and what he was looking for, and it turned into an incredible uh, sale because all of a sudden they were listening to the client and getting everything out of him because he turned it into a conversation. And see, that makes sense. And I have to tell you my tire pitch, it's... I live in the deep south. I live not too far from the Gulf of Mexico. In fact, I'm equidistant between Hurricanes Katrina and Rita. It tells you everything you need to know about (laughs) And in June, we're going to have hurricane season come up again. Oh, goody. But I moved here when I was pretty young. And, you know, back then, I I don't watch TV. I really don't enjoy it. But I would hear this really loud commercial. I'd be moving around the house and somebody would have the TV on and I would hear this god-awful commercial and it's old. I'm sure this man is long since deceased, but here's this very swarthy 
kind of unattractive man, and he's wearing a bright red jacket. <clears throat> Excuse me, and he's in front of a bunch <laughs> of tires. And he says, and he throws his arms out, and he says, tires ain't pretty, but you got to have them. I don't know how many decades ago that was, but I have never forgotten that. Tires ain't perfect, but you've got to have them. I mean, how convincing is that? <laughs> That's wonderful. And you told it really nicely. I was picturing the man. That was <laughs> lovely. I would see him around town and say, hey, tires ain't party, and he'd just laugh, and he'd finish it, and, you know, it was a very nice man, and I actually bought tires from him because that commercial told me I needed tires, which I really oh, did. Absolutely. That's funny. And I don't know. I like it. At the same time, this is about the time we were all told, don't do your own commercials. It's a bad idea. Hire somebody. I'm going to argue with that. <laughs> He was very persuasive. Yeah, he sounds fantastic. It sounds very charming, which is is really nice. Well, it was. And, you know, he was just the nicest man. And, of course, I haven't seen him. I'm sure he's long gone. He was not a young man at the time. But, you know, you, you hear these stories, and they can be two sentences, and they stick with you. And I think that's what you're talking about. What really resonates to people? Do they want to be sold? No. Do they want to be convinced and entertained? Oh, heck yeah. Now, years ago, I decided that instead of driving a car, I wanted an SUV. And I went down to the Infinity Sales uh, uh, place, and I hate going to look for cars. And fellows said, Here's our newest one, and it was voted the number one car in, and I'm waiting to hear car and driver road and crack, and he said, GQ. The, the magazine? And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, you know, gentleman's quarterly. Yeah. And all of a sudden, I'm picturing myself in a tweed coat driving through a Connecticut uh, forest with my leather driving gloves being an English gentleman driving this car. And I bought the darn thing. Oh, I love that. Did you like it, though? Yeah, it was okay. But it was the image that he gave me. And he had the, the secret, which is get the person to feel good about the item. That's what you need to make things happen. And, you know, one of the... There's a... a fellow named Seth Godin, who's a oh, I know. incredible I've watched marketing. Him for, okay. Yep. Okay. Seth and his Wonderful. tribe. We all and, know about tribes. And he has a, a great a great example. He said, you know, if you can't tell your story in a sentence or two, it's not worth telling. And he talks about a company that sells wine glasses for about twenty five bucks a piece. And you can go into most stores and buy four wine glasses for $20. So who's going to pay $25 per glass? And, you know, clearly he's looking for upscale people who are wine connoisseurs. And they have this wonderful statement where he said, would you serve a $90 bottle of wine in a $2 wine glass? Good point. It's wonderful. Oh, 
And here I was thinking and, Dollar and, Tree, four for a buck. Uh, exactly. And it's it's kind of interesting. That, are, are you familiar with a, a martial art called Aikido? No, I'm not, but I saw it in your book. Aikido is a wonderful concept because instead of smashing people all the time, what you do is somebody comes at you and you sort of grab them and redirect them using their own force. So, like, if you're charging me and I can kind of step aside and push you a little, you'll be on the ground. And his concept of marketing is like that, that don't try and sell people stuff they don't want. Find out who they want to be and how they want to be seen and say, I've got something that will get that done for you. So you're using their own momentum. Exactly. Exactly. Gotcha. Gotcha. And you you talked about sales earlier. Listen, all of my life I have been told, I I remember this a long time ago, I was having a conversation, I think in a feed store, I don't remember where I was, and this very elderly old man, and he, he was a farmer, you could tell, and he walked up behind us, he said, honey, can I tell you something? I said, sure. And he said, you are the best natural salesperson I've ever seen. And I wanted to slug him because telling me (laughs) I'm a salesperson was like, I just, he actually, I was speechless and that is not easy to do. But I just kind of gaped at him and said, what? I didn't know what he meant. And it took me years to figure out what he meant by that. But when you're talking, as we spoke earlier, you're speaking extemporaneously, and you know what you're talking about, and you're excited about it. You get a whole lot further than a sales pitch, a canned sales pitch. And for a long time, people say, oh, you need to be in sales. Oh, my gosh, stop it. You are off my Christmas card list. Turns out I'm actually a salesperson. Well, no, you you hit the magic spot, which is when you're pitching, people want to see is your enthusiasm. Right. And that's essential to do. And it's it's interesting because some people kind of have that naturally and some people don't. And you have to actually learn and practice how to present yourself enthusiastically. You know, there are people who are just really reserved, kind of introverted. We actually talk about their their acting exercises where you take an emotion that you're working on and you start to exaggerate it and make it really cartoony and play around up there in the stratosphere with it, find an element you like, and then dial it back down to where you can use it. I like that. It's interesting. Among other things, we work with, with writers and there are, are writers who are also actors and they've done improv and they're wonderful in a room pitching. It's the most natural thing in the world to them. There are other people who are writers who chose writing because they're in a room by themselves with their keyboard. They love that and then all of a sudden they get into a room with other people and that's not what they're good at and not what they like. And it's really difficult to get excited about something if you're not excited about your own stuff. Or you're terrified of it. Listen, I know I can write. I think I can write. I want to write. You know what I have? An epic blank page. I don't write. (laughs) And I'm telling myself every day. Well, you know, 
as as a psychologist, I my specialty, the only people I work with are people who have stage fright. And so we run up against things like writer's block all the time. And we get a lot of people that have to pitch and are terrified to walk into a room. Even though they love the stuff that they're pitching, they just see people out there staring at them and go, oh, my God, I'm supposed to put on a show here. Right, right. And I have to ask you, one of the things that I find about people who are natural speakers or who are comfortable you know, on the radio, let's, you know, what is it, and I think you and I talked about this in the, the pre-interview, one of the most frightening things that people think about is not dying. It's public speaking. It's one of the things, which mm-hmm. I find a bit bizarre because I get on the radio and I just chatter up a storm. I'm an introvert. Oh, you're a natural. So much. Yeah, but I'm an introvert. Who knew? A big time. I mean, I bought my house online. I bought my car online. I buy my groceries online. I don't go out there unless I just have to. And it's not that I don't like people. I like people just fine, but I like to be alone better. But what what I'm thinking and what I'd like to ask you about is when we're we're writing a pitch or we're, we're creating a pitch or we're thinking about a pitch, don't we have to actually listen? Don't we have to read between the lines and find out what people really want? Like, like the man did. Tell me, tell me what you hated the least. That was brilliant. That was listening. Uh You know, if I can quote my wife, you know, she says it's nice when people are interesting, but I like people who are interested. Right. Right. And it's a really nice way to say it. Yeah. People want to be heard. And everybody's their own favorite topic. And if you're interested in me, I like you right away. And that's part of persuasion and storytelling, isn't it? When you're telling a story, you need to bring the other person along for the ride. But rule number one in storytelling is never be the hero of your own story. Well, that makes sense. Give me some um, some case studies where you've had to deal with that, and somebody was like, "It's me. It's it's all about me. It's all about me." How did you convince them to maybe not do that all the time? Because we've all been around that person. They pull up, you see them coming, and you run for the back door. That all they're going to do is There's talk a about themselves. Fellow named John Scully. I don't know if you remember him. He was the CEO of Pepsi and then became the CEO of Apple and then fired Steve Jobs. Do you remember Oh, him? yeah, I do. Okay, I, I got to interview John Scully, and I said, hey, how, why are you such a good, good public speaker? And he said, I don't think of myself as a good public speaker, but I have an MBA in marketing. And what I learned was when you're talking to people You want to find out what it is that they want to know, and that's what you tell them. And it sounds so simple, but but I can tell you, you know, that being somebody who works with people who have stage fright, I work with public speakers all the time. And I'm stunned when I say, well, show me your presentation. Let's go through it. And they start right away with, here's what I want to say. I've I've heard that. Stop them immediately and say, no, tell me what they want to hear. And make sure that that's what you present. Because it's it's stunning how it's not the same thing. 
And what? so you always need to know what your audience is looking for. And they right. sense when it's about them, not when it's about you. They do. I do. We, we all do. And I guess that's part of sales. And anybody who says they're not in sales, as I did when I was younger and much more arrogant than I am now, <laughs> picture that. <laughs> I really thought sales was just horrible. Nobody wanted to be in sales, and a lot of people still don't. We are. Watch a three-year-old. Try to talk a three-year-old out of anything. They're in sales. They're good at it. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Um, but where do we lose what, that that drive to to be in sales and but, to present ourselves and to help other people? Where does that go? Again, I think people get so so wound up about saying, here's what I want to pound into your head. Features. you got to know, let me go through the features of this. Um, that they lose sight of what the, what the other person, you know, as much as I don't like to talk about selling, good salespeople start out immediately with, tell me what you're looking for. Not, have I got this great thing? And they start trying to fit it to their needs. And if you're good at really teasing this stuff out of people to find out what things really matter, you start doing a lot better. Because it's not so you're listening. I know better than you. Right, right. So you're listening and you're watching and you're absorbing. Absolutely, absolutely. And you're, you're tailoring it to what's going to make their lives better. Well, that's... But a big right. part of it is, is getting this idea of how does this person want to be seen? How do they view themselves? And, you know, it's like if, if you're looking for the toothpaste that makes your teeth look really white or you're looking for one that's not going to give you gingivitis, um, it's, a, it's a whole different way to pitch them on toothpaste. So if you don't know what they're looking for, you're just saying you're barraging them with your feature list. doesn't work. I mean, again, a lot about how when people are branding, it's the same thing. that They're talking about here's the way we want to puff ourselves up and, and the image we want rather than what moves people. Understood. Right. I'll tell you what, what I find fascinating is – for years, I've been doing research in the psychology of persuasion. I think it's absolutely fascinating. And what I find the most interesting part of it is that almost all of it happens below the radar, that people don't realize that they're being influenced. And it's, it's, a, it's a phenomenal thing. Um, we cite some studies there's, a, there's an area uh, called priming, fascinating. Uh, I'll give you an example of a wonderful study. Took a bunch of college kids, divided them into two groups, and gave each of them five words, and said, just take these words and make them into different sentences. Just give us a list of, of sentences recombining these words. What the students who are unaware of is that one group got words like tired, wrinkled, gray, 
and the other one got the opposite set of words that imply youth. So one one was looking at words that, that had the implication of youth, the other of old age. Then they said, okay, the next part of the experiment, you have to go down this long hallway and go to the, uh, the door on the left. The real experiment was they timed how long it took each kid to walk down this long, long corridor. Oh, I know where you're going with this. The words about youth, the ones that had the, the youth words were way faster. And when they asked them later, did you realize that you walked slower and you had the wrinkled words? <laughs> they had no idea. And there's hundreds of studies showing how this works. So even the vocabulary that you use hits you below the radar, but it influences you. There was there's a interesting study where college students were given two sentences to react to. One, how happy are you? The other, uh, describe your social life in the last two weeks. Depending on the order of those sentences, determine how happy they said they were. They were asked how happy they were first. Their happiness ratings are much lower than if they were first thinking about all the cool things they've been doing in the last two weeks. They rated themselves much higher. Something so words happens. matter. Yeah, words absolutely matter. And oh, how you, oh. you structure them and the questions that you ask. And again, it's, it's what do you get people to think about? That's important. I'm glad you said that because everything that we do, we're thinking about it. But if we are using persuasion, if we're using, you know, building a pitch, if we're having a podcast, we have to think about that, don't we? We have to think about what other people are really, really thinking about and how you pull that out and work it together. Well, absolutely correct. And what, where that starts is in your preparation, in the homework you do for your pitch. One of the things that you want to do is really learn about the people that you're pitching to. I don't know if you, if you are familiar with a book called Thinking Fast and Slow, Daniel Kahneman. No, I'm not, but I'll look it up. Um, he's a Princeton psychology professor and winner of the uh, Nobel Prize in Economics, one of the smartest people walking the planet. And he says there are two ways we think. One is just using our intuition, and the other is thinking really deep and hard. Well, it turns out that when you ask people, you know, when you have a tough problem that you have to get through, an important problem in your life, do you use deep, hard thinking, or do you just go right to your intuition? And they all say, oh, I think real deep and hard. But they actually it. Now, what's interesting from a persuasion point of view is intuition sounds very flighty, but it actually means everything you know everything you believe in, every bias that you have, very powerful. And it enables you to make quick decisions. You'd never get out of a market or a Costco alive if you had to start weighing every, every element and every number. But your intuition gets you through it real quickly. But it turns out when you're pitching, if your pitch is hitting their intuition just right, 
everything is smooth and everything is right in the world. The minute you force them into deep thought, what you've done is you said, the world as you know it doesn't work that way. Now you have to parse everything out. And the first thing that it does is it makes you very skeptical and hard to convince because it doesn't match your intuition. Well, how do you know? You find out in your research. Where has this person worked? What products or skills or um, techniques have they been involved in? And you want to keep your pitch as consonant with that as possible, bring them at their intuitive level. They're smiling and happy and they, everything looks good. The minute you cross them, they say, wait a minute, wait a minute, that doesn't sound right. You've got them being really, really suspicious. They want to test everything, and they're much harder to convince. And that's the moment you hear, oh, I need to ask my wife. It's over. Mm-hmm. Once you've heard that, <laughs> it's over. Oh, you have oh, turned them away partner, somehow. And your research has to be careful. Um, um, we have a, a, a friend who's a, a movie producer, and he produced a movie called The Burbs. And at the end of the movie, the hero is supposed to die. Well, the studio came to him and said, we're not killing Tom Hanks. No, he has to live. This fellow hates that movie he produced. Studio made him change the ending. So if you were pitching something to him and said, hey, I love your work. I saw the verbs. Great. You've just been shown the door. So when you're finding stuff out and you're doing your prep work, you better dig deep. Because just because they are responsible for something doesn't mean they're proud of it. Good point. So we're talking, I think this is one of the most important elements of a pitch. You have several, don't you? I'm sorry? I'm sorry? The elements, that's one of the important elements of a pitch, knowing your audience. Essential. Right. Essential, but doing serious, deep research. And then what's interesting is, you know, if you have several people in the room, one of the things you'd love to be able to do is get them all nodding their heads yes. Um, Because what happens, you look for the first person that seems to be agreeing with you and get them on your side, because as soon as he looks favorable or she looks favorable, other people are saying, well, I guess it's okay. Because there's, a, there's an interesting phenomenon in the, in the research literature on persuasion called social proof. The classic experiment was they had, a, they had a person standing on a street corner in a busy urban area, and he's looking up in the air. And people just walking by him like he doesn't exist. Condition one. Condition two four people standing together are all looking up. Everybody stops to look up. We have this idea that if everybody is going this way, we should probably be going that way too because the crowd knows better. We don't like to go against the group. One of of the most famous experiments in the psychology literature went way back to the 50s and this was done at Harvard where they're pretty bright kids, card with a line on it. And they said, look at this. And they took it away and they showed him three other cards with lines and said, which one is the same length as the one you saw? 
and there was six kids in, in, a, in a line, each looking at them, and they all said the one that was correct, twice. On the third time, the first five guys in line were stooges, and the real subject was number six. And every one of them said the same incorrect answer. And what they're looking at was, would you have the guts to go against the group with your own correct answer, or would you fold and go with the group? 50% of the students collapsed. Oh, no. With the group. This study has been repeated hundreds of times. They've done upgraded studies with, with fMRI machines where they could literally see what's going on inside their brains to see that it was when they were making the choice, it was stimulating the amygdala, the fear center in the brain. We don't like to go against the group. Very powerful. One of the things that's interesting, um, I don't know if you watched the Super Bowl this year. No, but I don't watch TV watch and I really don't year. watch sports at all. Well, I watch the Super Bowl every year, and I'm not that crazy about football. It's okay, but I watch it for the ads because I'm interested in that. And there's a huge shift now in ads from here's why my product is good to my product is the most popular. Mm. More people use mine. And again, it's going towards this idea of social proof. Right. This is, this is the new zeitgeist in advertising, is to say, mine must be the best because most people like it. So is this one of the, the persuasion tactics we should be using when we're Absolutely. crafting a pitch? Yeah. yeah. Okay. If you're in the room and somebody seems to be agreeing with you, build that up so more people do it. And you know, some of these factors are so subtle. I mean, let me give you an example of another study I love. They, they took college students and they gave them a persuasive talk to see if they would change their minds about things. And what they really wanted to do, both groups got the same pitch, but they wanted to see would it make a difference if we got one group to nod their heads up and down as they listened and the other group to, to see what would happen if they shook their heads back and forth, like indicating no. It was really clever. They did was... They said, we want you to try these special goggles, and they're motion activated. And they told one, the way you have to activate it is shake your head back and forth. The way you activate it, nod up and down. And it was about a 30% difference in terms of persuadability with the ones nodding their heads up and down. When they listened and they were shaking their heads, no, it affected how they perceived the argument. Okay, I have to ask, if I'm the person, yeah, it, I'm pig-headed. I, I'm going to be the one saying, nope, I told you which one it was already. Don't ask me again if you're talking about the length <laughs> of anything. I'm a, I'm a bit pig-headed about things like that. But here's the thing. If I were pitching and I'm watching the room, I'm reading the room, I'm you know, paying attention to the audience, mm -hmm. and I see that mm -hmm. it is just bombing I have to stop, and I hate this word pivot because it's been overused during COVID, but I have to reprogram my what I'm showing them, don't I? 
And how you do you do that? A hundred you're a hundred percent correct. One of the phrases we have in the book is you don't start selling until you get a no. Oh, let's talk about that. And, but, but again, but before we get there, and I'm happy to talk about anything you want, I just want to give you one or two other things that go along with what we've been saying. Um, when you, the pitch begins long before you've said your first word. The way you walk into the room is a huge factor. Let me tell you one of the things that I'm really proud of about this book. Um, I'm a boring academic. I spent most of my years as a university professor, and I guess it's redundant to say boring academic. Um, but I would hate to have a book of my opinions. So we did a lot of research. We had hundreds and hundreds of research studies because we wanted to see, is there science behind what we're saying? And does it agree with it? And some of these things you think are so subtle, but the effects are so strong. There was a, a wonderful study where they had music professors and music students judging students in a recital. And they did this really clever thing where if you've ever seen how focus groups watch sitcoms, they have these dials that they hold in their hand and the more you turn it to the right, the more you're liking it. The more you turn it to the left, the more you're disliking it. And the coolest thing about it is it's continuous. So you're seeing it every second where, the, where your audience is. I mean, wouldn't that be a cool thing to have? So the first thing they did was they looked at what's the effect of how they walk from the side of the stage up to their piano. That effect was so strong, and it lasted for minutes into the performance. The ones that came in with drooped shoulders and walked in slowly like they were being, you know, put there under the penalty of death, that effect turned the audience off incredibly. The ones that had the shoulder high and walked in confidently, huge effect. And take something as simple as smiling. No big deal, smiling, huge. Um, the research on smiling is unbelievable. Um, we start seeing it in the form of babies when they're shown different pictures and what they smile at and don't and what their preferences are, but well into adulthood. And there are studies with depressed people where if you can get a depressed person to smile, they start feeling better. They report that they start feeling better. One of my favorite studies, they, they gave college students a bunch of jokes. Actually, they used Gary Larson, the far side. And they said, rate these jokes for how funny they are. And they got one group to smile and the other group to frown as they were looking at the jokes. The smilers rated all the jokes funnier than the frowners. And the way they got them to smile and frown was ingenious. Imagine taking a pencil and holding it between your teeth. They have a pencil, actually try this, it's really cool. You'll see it approximates a smile. Now, take the same pencil and put the eraser between your lips and hold it. 
and it approximates a frown. So that's what they had them do. They rated these jokes by holding a pencil in their mouth. And it totally changed their ratings. And so, again, just the impression you make before you said your first word, you've already changed how the audience feels about you. And listen, I have to kind of interject here, too. You don't have to be in person for this to happen. Listen, people know on the phone or on the radio if I'm smiling. They can tell. I can tell when I'm listening to other people what kind of mood they're in and do I want to steer clear. Sometimes I do. I'll say, you know what? Go have a cup of coffee. We'll talk again later. There is a – one of the groups that I love in the world, they're doing such incredible things, is the MIT Advanced Media Lab. Incredibly inventive. Genius is there. And they invented a machine – it's about the size of an iPhone that you wear around your neck, and it measures charisma. Aha. Uh-huh. I want one. <laughs> now, how did they know that it really did? Now, the first two studies, again, ingenious. The first one presented into a group of businessmen. And they, uh, they did it under two conditions. One, they handed them the written one. The other, they, they pitched it in person. So the first interesting result was the, the rank ordered how much they liked the, uh, the business plans and that the orders, not surprisingly, were different if they were written or oral. Now, this little, this little gizmo around their neck had nothing to do with the written ones, but it predicted the order of the ones who represented oil. Sure, this thing really worked. The second study they did, are you familiar with the concept of speed dating? Yes, I've heard of it. Well, I do it new, but I'm aware of it. <laughs> but, but you know how it works. That mm-hmm. people, okay. Men and women sit opposite one another at a big table. They have five minutes to chat, and then they get up and move their chairs to the next one. So you sit next to everybody in the group. And then at the end, you anonymously put down uh, which people you'd like to exchange numbers with, and if both the, the man and the woman want to meet each other, they're given the phone numbers. If not, they don't. This little machine predicted which people would exchange phone numbers. Hard about what is it, how does it do what it does? And this is the part that shows you that you are 100% correct and insightful. Um, so it measures three different things, and the first one it measures is um, what linguists call prosody, the things that are, are emotional to convey meaning in speech. So in other words, pitch. When you're listening to a really boring speaker, what's the word you use to describe it? You don't want me to say that on the radio. It's horrible. When when you listen to something like that, all I can think is, this is a dud. I've got better things to do. Exactly. But now people who, who use their pitch well will go up or down a whole octave. When they want to show excitement, I can't believe this thing was so great. Or let me tell you the worst experience I ever had until I figured out the key to investing. So go 
going down, if you do it well, all of a sudden shows gravitas, it's seriousness. So these things really matter. Speed. Again, when we get excited and enthusiastic, we speed up. Well, we want to, again, really emphasize something. Remember the old E.F. Hutton commercial? No. And everybody in the room stops to listen. So all these things. When, when you were a, uh, a kid in middle school, your teacher probably did the, uh, the, uh, the stress exercise with you where you take a sentence and you read it and you stress one word. And then you go to the next word. And it changes the meaning each time. I love being interviewed by you. So if it's always, I love being interviewed by you. Mm, I love being interviewed by you. I love being interviewed by you. So again, that starts to matter. So all these things, which is what you were talking about basically, are, are picked up right away. And we just sense that. This is an interesting, charismatic person, or, oh, God, when was the next thing they use, uh, I heard a wonderful joke. Uh, did you hear about the Italian man who broke both his hands who became a mute? No. Italian people gesture with their hands all the oh, time. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I've been accused of being Italian because, honestly, I've had people grab my <laughs> hands while I'm not talking. I'm not Italian. But later, I want you to think of that joke I just told you and laugh. But for now, we'll let it pass. Um, but <laughs> well, now I got it. And I, did, start, I did laugh, start, but I was start. muting when we did it. <laughs> I had to we, stop and think I was about in Rome. it. I was in Rome, and I saw a woman running down the street holding a cell phone in one hand and gesturing wildly with the other. And nobody could see it, but she was still gesturing. It was just part of her essence. Habit, right. Right. And and the third thing is mimicry. Um, there's really interesting physiological evidence about the way mirror neurons work. And that if you mimic the person you're talking to subtly and you learn how to do it well, it's taken as a sign of empathy. Now, if you and I are having a conversation and we're both leaning back in a comfortable chair and all of a sudden, I start to get really excited about something and you pick up my excitement and as I lean forward towards you, you wait a couple of seconds and lean back in, it's like we're really together on this. So these factors make a huge difference in terms of how you connect with people. So basically, Peter, pitching is not just putting together this wonderful pitch you know, this wonderful sales oh, no. thing. And it's, it's no, no, far no. more than that. I mean, yes, you've written it. It's gorgeous. You've had people look at it. You've run it through Grammarly. There are no boo-boos there. It's beautiful. But you have every possibility of getting up in front of a room or on the phone or on Zoom and just absolutely losing one or two or every person in the room, if you're not taking care of the things, you're reading the room, you're using your voice, you're using your words, you're excited about persuading people what you have to offer them. And I think this is something a lot of people forget. It's your pitch, your sales, whatever it is. 
it's never about you. It's about them and how you can oh, help no. them or give assistance. Exactly. And I think that's a exactly. big, big point that people lose. It's not about you at all. Well, there's so many factors. Um, you know, we have a very large chapter in the book on practicing. Practicing is essential. I have a sticky. And, yeah, I have a yellow sticky there. I wanted to ask you about that. Well, there's a, a wonderful phenomenon called state-dependent learning, which is you need to practice the way you're going to pitch. And so, one of the things we advise people to do in any field is get together a group of friends slash colleagues and practice pitching to them. Simulate the pitch exactly the way you're going to do it to the point where, you know, if you're going to use a computer and a screen, practice with the computer and the screen. If you're going to be wearing a suit, practice in a suit. And um, you want to do things like one of the ways to bulletproof yourself in practice is to make sure that you learn how to deal with distractions because there are always going to be distractions. And you can have people come in in the middle of this practice session and whisper something in somebody's ear and then walk out, all sorts of things. And then um, you want to have people question you as you're giving your pitch and when you're done so you can practice responding to comments. And you want to get a couple of people in there who are going to ask you really tough questions, who are going to be really skeptical, so that you're used to handling that. And you All can't get... All of things that can be practiced. And I believe that. I hadn't even thought about that. That makes, makes perfect sense. And you can't get your feelings hurt. I think that's a lot of what will stop a lot of people. Oh, yeah, they're not going to like me or they're going to say things and I won't have an answer for it. I don't know everything. I mean, we have so many reasons why we don't want to do any kind of public speaking or pitching. And I, by, by you saying you have to practice this, I think you're going to grow a Absolutely. tougher skin. And learn oh, yeah. what you do know and what you don't know, and you better find out what you don't know very quickly. But again, this whole thing about having people like you in the room, and you can't control that, of course, but simple things like eye contact, essential. There's research on on eye contact. If you're pitching to one person, because you got to make eye contact, but... The ideal is you make eye contact 50% of the time. If you don't make any eye contact at all, you absolutely lose them and you, you look like you're a social deviant. But if you're constantly staring at them, you look like you're wearing a, a white lab coat and they're the experiment. So we shoot for 50%. And oh, it's worse than that. If somebody is is staring me right in the eyes and they're not deviating away from that, I'm just waiting for the big lie. I know I'm about to be lied to. Oh, yes. and, and what you do is the time that you look at them is mostly when they're talking and the time you look away is when you're talking. Because oh, if okay. I'm talking to you and all of a sudden I'm staring at the ceiling, it looks like I'm deep in thought and I'm being spontaneous. 
So that's a good time to look away. But when they're talking, I want to check them out really carefully. I want to see their body language. I want to see their facial expressions. All that becomes really important. Now, when you're in a, if you're pitching to several people, one of the biggest mistakes people make is usually you know the pecking order in the room, and you're going to stare at the big cheese. Terrible mistake. You've got to look at everybody. The, the person in there who's taking notes, clearly an underling. Do you want to stare at him at all? You betcha, because a week later, when they're in the conference room discussing your pitch, that's the person that can sink you. And if he hates you now because you ignored him, he's going to give a different rendition of what you said than if he loves you. You wouldn't think that's an important thing. It's gargantuan. I would think so. It's kind of like the the trying to get past the secretary at somebody's office. If she does not like you, you're going oh. nowhere. Whatever you hand her is going straight in the trash. You are so good. It's essential. They they are the gatekeeper. Exactly. That's the word. That's the word I was looking for. It's it's essential. But, you know, I mean, it's, it's a great habit anyway that people don't like to be ignored. And if, if you just give a curt so-and-so in, there's no reason to do that, especially if you could – there's a lot of in, – in the persuasion literature, one of the things that's really important is giving compliments. People but love they have compliments. to be real compliments. And wait, and the reason, but the wait, wait. Uh, this is a tricky one. The research shows that even if somebody knows that they don't deserve the compliment, it still works. Really? The only time that a compliment, yes, the only time a compliment doesn't work is if somebody feels like you're playing them. You know, if they feel like, oh, this person's trying to butter me up with a compliment, that's death. So there has to be a certain level of sincerity. But, yeah. And what you just said before, what you just said before is absolutely spot on. The, there is, there is a, a way, there's a technique for using compliments. And the very first one is the one you nailed, which is you can't give general compliment. You're nice. I like you. It's got to be specific. <laughs> and it's got to be, and so what you want to do is take something, you want to look for something that the person feels good about themselves about, and that's what you use for your compliment. And it does two things. One is it makes them feel good because they're being complimented. You've noticed something that they feel good about themselves. The other thing is it raises your stock because you were smart enough to notice you're not in there to just pitch and talk and hammer at people. Yeah. You're yeah. actually there to meet and, people. Well, oh, you, you know, every time I'm about to say something, you nail it. Oh, <laughs> you are good. I did read your book. Uh, there, <laughs> um, I won't count. I won't count that as cheating. But what's interesting, <laughs> we we wrote okay. a little paper saying that every time you pitch, pitching two things. Of course, you're pitching your idea, whatever the project is. But, of course, you're also pitching yourself. And 
very often it happens that somebody will not accept your pitch. They won't buy whatever it is that you're pitching. But a couple of weeks later, you get a phone call saying, we've got this project. Uh, would you like to work on it? Because they're saying, I'd like to be in business with this person. I would enjoy working with them. Right. And, whatever it was that the you way, pitched the last time wasn't in our wheelhouse then, but we like where you're going. Yeah. And 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 again, there are things that you want to look at as you're doing this. Um, and typically, like, it, it involves the negative. If, like in Hollywood, when somebody gives you back a script, they give you notes, or even as you're pitching. Well, if you thought about this versus that, and if you get defensive, they want to show you the door. But if you say, oh, I never thought of it that way, that's good. Instead of looking at that as a criticism, you should be saying to yourself, this person likes my idea enough to want to enter into a collaborative, a creative collaboration with me. I want to nurse that. I want to build on that because they're liking it. I'm on my way to a green light. Without recognizing it, you're also networking, which people tend to just kind of pass by. And one of the things we talk about in the book is if somebody is not making any suggestions or any comments, we give some suggestions for how you can get somebody to do it because you want that. You want somebody to say, I want to be part of this project. I like it so much. I want my ideas reflected in it, too. So you want that sort of involvement. Right. Peter, we are out of time. Remember I told you this was the fastest hour on the Internet? I wasn't joking. So where can people... You have made it a really fast hour. And I really want to thank you. Um, You are so good at getting information out of people. Well, thank you. I really appreciate this is, this that. Is, this is fun. I just, you know, I I felt like we were chatting, not, hey, um, let me talk to you about why you should buy my book. Yeah, exactly. I, don't, I don't feel smarmy at the end of it. I don't feel yeah. like I was selling. And no, you did you that. Weren't. <laughs> you weren't. And this is why I invite people like you onto my podcast, because honestly, and I've said this before, I view my guests as my mentors. I get to read your books. I interview a lot of authors. And I get to read your books. I get to learn from you. I get to keep on watching what you're doing over time and continue to learn. So I thank you. And it is wonderful speaking with you. And I thank you for all of the terrific tips and the advice that you shared with our audience, particularly about persuasion. Listen, none of us want to think that we have to go persuade people or sell something, but we do, so we might as well find the best way to do it. So before we say goodbye, tell people where they can find you and where they can find your book, Pitch Like Hollywood. Well, all the usual places, uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, they've all got it. Um, And... uh, McGraw-Hill has been very nice company to work with, and they, they really get our books out there. And just it, it couldn't be easier. You can get it in. Now, the one problem we have is if you get a, a Kindle version and you find me, I cannot sign it for you. But you know what you can do? You Sorry, can send bad people... joke, bad joke. 
right. You can send people a book bookmark. A lot of people do that. They'll create a bookmark and then just mail it to whoever bought their book. I love that. That's a great yeah. idea. And it's, the, um, it's in, you can get it as an audio book. You can get it in hardback. The hardback version because if somebody argues with you, you can heave it at them. <laughs> well, I've got the uncorrected proof, which I like because then I can go get the real, you know, the done book when it's all over and I have two copies. One is all scribbled in and, you know, marks all over it and it's got sticky notes all over But I don't defile a hardback book ever. I just won't do it. Ah. <laughs> anyway, well, well, listen, it pretty colors. They put pretty colors on the cover so it will look nice on the coffee table. Exactly. Well, listen, before we say goodbye, I would like to remind our audience to be sure to look for us in iTunes and Audible, Amazon Prime, anywhere else you consume your business podcasts. Honestly, you can't throw a stick on the Internet without hitting your part in Success Radio. So find us and take us along on your success journey. Peter, thank you. Hey, thank you for making this so much fun. My pleasure. Get your voice heard. If you would like to launch your own far-reaching podcast, contact Denise Griffiths at yourofficeontheweb.com and go to the podcast tab. 